Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our look at Union spying and intelligence during the Civil War. If you haven't listened to part one, I would suggest checking that out before starting this part two. Last time out, we went over the evolution of the Union's approach to intelligence, starting with General George McClellan's privatized approach, outsourcing the job to Alan Pinkerton and his famous Pinkerton Detective Agency. Then we discussed the appointment by General Joe Hooker of Colonel George Sharp to overhaul the federal approach to information gathering. Colonel Sharp founded the Bureau of Military Information, which was designed to cast a much wider net than prior efforts, collecting intelligence from traditional and non-traditional sources. George Sharp's team also included dedicated analysts, whose job it was to examine and interpret the vast quantity of data gathered from the Bureau of Military Information's array of sources. In a nutshell, Colonel Sharp's theory, which proved effective, was that some information might seem irrelevant by itself, but still prove valuable when viewed in context. So gather as much as possible and try to fit it together into a larger picture. This time out, we're going to focus more on individual spy stories, We've got a Richmond socialite secret spy ring that included current and former slaves, and a Washington, D.C. counterintelligence specialist who looks like a forerunner to J. Edgar Hoover, and a professional actress turned spy, and even a story of a Canadian woman who dressed as a man to enlist in the Union war effort and used other disguises, more controversial by modern standards, to infiltrate the Confederate Army. So I expect this will be a fun one. And I should mention that this was originally recorded to be one episode and got split into two due to some technical issues. So we're going to pick right back up where we left off. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy part two of our look at Union Espionage. Colonel Sharp's successful transformation of Union intelligence was due in large part to his incorporation of a multitude of sources into the analytics process. That often involved using previously overlooked sources, but it also meant integrating existing sources into the Bureau's work. In early 1864, as Grant was planning and then beginning the difficult task of capturing Richmond, Colonel Sharp brought into the Bureau's fold an existing pro-Union spy network, operating in Confederate territory and run by Richmond socialite Elizabeth Van Loo. Elizabeth Van Loo was one of the most prominent Union intelligence assets who was actually a Southerner, sometimes known as Crazy Bet. She was born into a wealthy slaveholding family in Richmond, but she became an abolitionist under, under her mother's influence. When Virginia seceded, she was in her early 40s and unmarried, living in the Van Loo family home with her widowed mother. As a committed Unionist presenting herself publicly as a loyal Virginian, Van Loo decided to use her position in the Richmond social scene to aid the Union war effort. Historians consider Elizabeth Van Loo to be one of, or sometimes the, most valuable of Union spies. Her biggest contribution was in helping to establish a network of Union spies and informants in and around the Richmond area and a system for smuggling information to Washington, 
or to the Union Army. Headquartered in her family's farmhouse just outside the rebel capital, Elizabeth Van Loo's network also snuck in food and supplies to Union POWs who were being held in the prison camps around Richmond. And they coordinated with other abolitionist groups to assist escaped slaves in reaching Union lines, providing food, temporary shelter, and instructions. One of Van Loo's earliest contributions involves the interest she took in Libby Prison. When the Confederates opened the POW camp, Van Lu talked her way into being permitted to provide extra food and other items to Union prisoners. The gift sometimes came with hidden messages, and she was even allowed to speak with POWs on occasion by bribing guards. Several federal soldiers who escaped the prison sought temporary refuge in the Van Lu farmhouse and assistance in getting back to Union lines. Those efforts were not well received in Richmond, and even earned condemnation of Richmond newspapers. Uh, though her role in the prison escape and in later similar efforts was not known among Southerners until after the war. Union officials learned from escaped POWs that there was a well-placed Unionist in Richmond, and a federal scout made a covert trip to the Van Loo farm to discuss an expanded role in the Union war effort. They developed a system for writing coded messages, and Elizabeth Van Loo learned how to write hidden messages that could only be read if the reader knew how to activate the magic spy ink. By the start of 1864, she was regularly sending secret messages to Union headquarters with information about rebel troop movements and strength. With lines of communication open to Washington and with the Union Army, Elizabeth Van Loo began recruiting other Unionists in and around Richmond to begin gathering information. The network had at least a dozen spies from all walks of life, slaves, free blacks, and white unionists from a variety of backgrounds, including agents in the Confederate government and possibly a slave in the household of Jefferson Davis. With Van Loo at the center, they developed a covert system for relaying information and established multiple uh, what you might call safe houses throughout the Richmond area. Now, we briefly mentioned Elizabeth Van Loo in an earlier episode about the Dahlgren Affair, a uh, Union raid on Richmond that may or may not have had the purpose of assassinating Jefferson Davis. After that raid failed uh, and resulted in the uh, death of its leader, Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren, Richmond residents who were outraged over the uh, apparent assassination attempt took possession of and disrespectfully displayed Colonel Dahlgren's corpse until Jefferson Davis ordered for the body to be buried in a secret location. Van Loo learned of that location through a well-placed bribe, and her network secured and smuggled the body to the Van Loo farmhouse, where it was buried properly, and eventually returned to the Dahlgren family after the war. Now, needless to say, Running a pro-Union spying operation from the Confederate capital involved some pretty intense personal risk. As we have seen, uh, hanging was the standard punishment for spies. Fortunately, Elizabeth Van Loo remained a mostly covert operative during the war. There were certainly some suspicions, but her status as an uh, upper-class woman gave her some protection. A uh, proper southern lady just wouldn't do that sort of thing, after all. Now, Elizabeth Van Loo was also uh, clever enough to disguise her efforts to help the Yankees by also helping the rebels. 
she made a point of providing food and assistance to wounded Confederate soldiers in a publicly visible setting and occasionally allowing Confederate officers to stay at the Van Loo home in Richmond. This helped her uh, appear as more of a good-hearted Christian woman who was simply helping those in need, uh, instead of a disloyal Virginian giving aid to the enemy. So the true extent of Elizabeth Van Loo's espionage activities and the aid uh, to the Union cause were only discovered after the war had ended. When Richmond fell, Van Loo was given the honor of raising the U.S. flag over Richmond after the Union Army occupied the city, and General Grant made a point of meeting with and thanking her personally. Beyond that, though, Elizabeth Van Loo's story does not end with a particularly happy ending. She made a tremendous sacrifice for her country's war effort, and she would pay for it socially for the rest of her life. After the war, Elizabeth Van Loo's successful espionage operation became publicly known. Now, while that earned her some limited praise in the North, uh, she mostly became a pariah in Richmond, a snitch at best or a traitor at worst. No one wanted to be associated with a Yankee spy, and local kids even passed around stories that Elizabeth Van Loo was a literal witch. Her contribution to the Union war effort also came with a steep financial price. Elizabeth Van Loo came from a wealthy Richmond family, but she put almost all of that family fortune into funding the espionage, POW relief, and escaped slave assistance activities that she coordinated throughout the war. So for the rest of her days in the post-bellum era, Elizabeth Van Loo was poor. She asked the federal government in Washington if she could be reimbursed for the considerable family wealth that she had sunk into the war effort, but she was rebuffed. She applied for a federal pension, but that request, too, was rejected. You might say that the feds didn't have nearly the budget for paying intelligence sources in the late 19th century that they do now. Or if you're more cynical-minded, you might say that they saw no reason to pay retroactively since they had already received the benefit of any information and service that Elizabeth Van Loo had to offer. Now, she did receive some financial relief when General Ulysses Grant became President Grant and gave her a job as Richmond's postmaster. She held that position for the eight-year Grant presidency, but lost it at the end of Grant's second term in 1877. For the last 23 years of her life, Elizabeth Van Loo relied for support mostly from thankful Union soldiers who had benefited from her efforts, particularly the unfortunate souls who found themselves imprisoned at Libby Prison or Belle Isle. Van Loo's most famous benefactor was a man with a famous name. During the war, she had helped out a Massachusetts colonel named Paul Revere, grandson of the Paul Revere of Midnight Ride and Sons of Liberty fame. When Elizabeth Van Loo died, her family had no money for a proper headstone, uh, but that too was donated from the North, a gift of the Revere family. The tombstone arrived from Massachusetts to mark Elizabeth Van Loo's death in 1900, reading, quote, She risked everything that is dear to man, friends, fortune, comfort, health, life itself, that slavery might be abolished and the Union preserved, end quote. Elizabeth Van Loo had kept a detailed journal throughout her life, which she kept secret until her death. 
at which point she passed it to the Revere family. They arranged for it to be published, which has provided historians a great deal of insight into the spy network in Richmond. That journal also detailed the emotional pain she felt over being reviled as a Yankee spy by fellow Richmond residents. Quoting Elizabeth Van Loo from her journal, quote, I am held in contempt and scorn by the narrow-minded men and women of my city for my loyalty, living as utterly alone in the city of my birth as if I spoke a different language. I do not know how they call me a spy serving my own country within its recognized borders. For my loyalty, am I now to be branded as a spy by my own country for which I was willing to lay down my life? Is that honorable or honest? God knows. End quote. One of the better known agents involved in Elizabeth Van Loo's Richmond spy network was Mary Richards Bowser, often described as a slave turned spy. Mary Bowser also used the names Mary Jane Richards, Mary Jones, Mary Jane Henley, and my personal favorite, Richmonia St. Pierre. For simplicity's sake, we're just going to stick with Mary Bowser. Uh, that was a married name that she used during the Civil War years. Uh, so that name, um, along with Mary Richards, are what you most commonly see in historical accounts. Mary Bowser was born as a slave of the Van Loo family. Her precise biographical details, including her parentage, are sketchy. She was probably mixed race, possibly with a Cuban father, but even Mary Bowser does not seem to have known the specifics with certainty. And we should emphasize here that there uh, is a lot of disagreement among historians uh, about uh, a lot of the details of Mary Bowser's life, including which name was, in fact, her real name. We do know that throughout her life, Mary Bowser was particularly close to Elizabeth Van Loo and uh, to Van Loo's mother, Eliza. And she was afforded opportunities that would not be available to most slaves, including an education in Pennsylvania and a baptism and wedding at St. John's Church in Richmond, which ordinarily uh, only whites could attend. Mary Bowser traveled to Liberia as a teenager uh, with the American Colonization Society, either as a Christian missionary or in connection with the repatriation movement. It's unclear whether the uh, original intent was for her to resettle in Liberia permanently or to serve as a missionary for a few years and then return. Uh, while she was there, she stayed in regular contact with the Van Loo's, and after a few years, she, she expressed in a letter to Elizabeth Van Loo that she wanted to come home. And Eliza Van Loo, uh, Elizabeth Van Loo's mother, booked Mary Bowser's return travel back to Baltimore and then to Richmond, arriving back in 1860. Now, antebellum Virginia had a law that prohibited a former slave who was educated in the North from returning to Virginia, and Mary Bowser was arrested and held for a little over a week for breaking that law. She was released at the Van Loo family's insistence that Mary Bowser had not technically broken that law, because Mary Bowser was not technically a former slave. As we mentioned, Elizabeth Van Loo and her mother were abolitionists, and they mostly operated as though Mary Bowser had been freed but they were unable to legally emancipate Mary Bowser due to a provision in Van Loo's father's will that prevented manumission. 
And I think we need to pause for a second to note the irony uh, of this situation. Mary Bowser was freed, as in released from police custody, because Mary Bowser officially had not been freed, as in emancipated under Virginia law. That episode drew the attention of the Richmond Whig newspaper, which concluded that, technicalities aside, Mary Bowser was not actually a slave and should have been treated as having broken Virginia law. Mary Bowser was 20 years old when the war started in 1861, and she was a very valuable player in the Richmond Spy Network. She could easily serve as a point of contact for the slaves and freed blacks who were covertly providing information because she could gain access to areas where Elizabeth Van Loo or other white unionists could not. Mary Bowser was good at presenting herself as either a free woman or a slave, depending on what the situation required, and she apparently had a talent for undercover work. She may have even infiltrated the Confederate White House, working as a servant for the Davis family, though some historians dispute that account. Uh, the specifics of her exploits are unfortunately vague, but based on the accounts of others uh, involved and of Mary Bowser herself, she was definitely a big contributor to the Richmond Spy Network. After the war, Mary Bowser spent the rest of her life as an educator, working with the Freedmen's Bureau, setting up and teaching at schools for former slaves and giving lectures in the North about her life and experiences during the war. She lectured under pseudonyms, so there's even some dispute over which speeches were truly given by Mary Bowser. And adding further to the mystery, the last confirmable historical record of Mary Bowser comes in a June 1867 letter in which she reports that she is preparing to travel to the Caribbean. And she was only 26 when she wrote that letter. Now, there's another letter written to Elizabeth Van Leeu from 1870 from M.J. Denman that was probably from Mary Bowser based on the handwriting and the tone of the letter. In the 1870 letter, the writer describes herself as working as a teacher in New York. There's no verifiable information about anything uh, after she would have turned 30. And as one more footnote to highlight the uncertainty um, around Mary Bowser, the picture of Mary Bowser that appears in um, many accounts of, uh, about her life is not even the right person. The picture is of a lady named Mary Bowser, but it's not THE Mary Bowser. During his time running Union intelligence operations, Alan Pinkerton correctly diagnosed that the steady stream of sensitive information flowing from Washington to Richmond was a serious problem for the Federal Army. But Pinkerton had only limited success in damming that flow, notwithstanding the arrest and deportation, uh, if that's the right word, of one of the Confederacy's best sources of information in D.C., Rose Greenhow, uh, who we'll discuss next time. Pinkerton's successor, Lafayette Baker, was a much more effective Union agent in the realm of anti-espionage. Lafayette Baker was born in 1826, making him about 35 when the war started. Like quite a few other of the subjects of this episode, he was from New York. But before the war, he had spent time all around the country, including time in Michigan, Virginia, and San Francisco. While living in the latter locale, Lafayette Baker was involved in the vigilantism that violently pushed back against the city's runaway crime rate, 
Um, we mentioned uh, the vigilance committees during our episode on General Sherman. Lafayette Baker moved to Washington, D.C. just before the war started, at 35 years old. Once war appeared to be inevitable and both sides began organizing, Baker somehow managed to talk himself into an audience with General Winfield Scott, still the Union's top military man. Baker told General Scott that he had lived in Richmond and he still had contacts there, and Baker suggested that he could be given a commission and then dispatched to Richmond as a covert agent. He would present himself as a photographer, but he would actually be on a mission to gather intelligence about Confederate military preparations. General Scott liked the idea, and he approved Baker's plan. In July 1861, Lafayette Baker left Washington for Richmond using the name Samuel Munson. He got as far as Alexandria, Virginia, which is to say he didn't get far. Union soldiers in Alexandria arrested Baker and accused him of being a rebel spy. Baker was well on his way to death by hanging, but Winfield Scott personally stepped in and verified that Lafayette Baker was not spying for the Confederacy. Baker again headed for Richmond, but was again arrested and accused of spying. This time, Confederate soldiers arrested him as a Union spy. Uh, as Baker told it, he was interrogated by General P.G.T. Beauregard and Jefferson Davis personally and convinced them that he was actually on the rebel side. He accomplished this by providing some information about uh, Union preparations that Baker judged to be of limited military value. Uh, one way or another, the rebels released Lafayette Baker and he left Richmond, only to be arrested once again uh, by the Confederates shortly after in Fredericksburg. This time, as Baker tells it, he was able to escape from the prison cell where he was being held. Now, I'm not an expert on spying, but it seems to me that being arrested and accused of spying uh, three separate times um, within the span of a few weeks in your, your first spy mission is not typically the marker of, uh, you know, an effective spy. However, when Lafayette Baker arrived back in Washington, he had a wealth of useful information about the rebels, which he passed along to General Winfield Scott, who was so pleased by the effort that he gave Baker a position in Union intelligence at the rank of captain. Word spread among the top Union brass about Lafayette Baker's successful expedition, well, successful aside from the, uh, the three arrests. So when Edwin Stanton needed someone to take over for Alan Pinkerton uh, after uh, McClellan was relieved of command, he contacted Lafayette Baker. And in September of 1862, Stanton arranged for Lafayette Baker's appointment as Provost Marshal of Washington uh, and put him in charge of the National Detective Bureau, uh, also called the National Detective Police. Um, if you're familiar with Edwin Stanton, it'll come as no surprise to learn that Stanton instructed Baker to report directly to Stanton. While under Lafayette Baker's leadership, the National Detective Bureau's focus was counterintelligence, rooting out Confederate sympathizers providing assistance to Richmond, and specifically rebel spies in Washington. During Lafayette Baker's tenure running the National Detective Bureau, which lasted for a little over a year, Federal authorities got much better at identifying rebel spies and information sources in D.C. 
Probably the biggest highlight of Baker's tenure was the capture of one of the Confederacy's most famous spies, Bell Boyd, who we will uh, discuss in much greater detail in our follow-up episode on the Confederate spies. Now, one of the most uh, notable features of Lafayette Baker um, and his uh, counterintelligence work was that he did not view himself as operating within constitutional bounds of rights and due process. He earned the nickname um, around Washington, Czar of the Underground, and Baker adopted the motto, Death to Traitors, for his uh, National Detective Bureau. Baker sought search and arrest warrants uh, only when it was convenient, and suspected Confederate agents were often severely beaten uh, or even tortured with Baker's approval. And it should be noted that the Washington residents um, who were interrogated and roughly handled by Baker and his men were not always uh, actual rebel spies. Uh, another thing you can definitely say about Lafayette Baker is that he had serious uh, uh, backbone. As we noted, he reported directly to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And during Baker's time heading up the National Detective Bureau, he uncovered significant corruption in the War Department, including Union officials making a boatload of loot by covertly trading with the Confederates. Now, we all know uh, that sort of thing, you know, rarely if ever happens in, uh, you know, Washington or, uh, you know, Ukraine or anything today, uh, especially when it comes to military appropriations. But I, I guess Lafayette Baker must have been a conspiracy theorist because he also suspected that Secretary Stanton, um, remember Baker's boss and one of the most powerful men in the country, was involved in crooked activities, taking advantage of his high office for personal gain. So Baker decided to look into it, and uh, that involved effectively wiretapping the telegraph lines into Edwin Stanton's office. So uh, here we have, uh, in 1863, an uh, intelligence agency in Washington using its powers and resources to spy on civilian authorities. Given their track record, I guess it would uh, have been surprising if that didn't happen. Okay, so Edwin Stanton found out what Lafayette Baker was up to, and surprisingly, he did not have uh, Baker arrested or killed. Instead, uh, Stanton fired Baker from his job running the National Detective Bureau uh, in D.C. and sent him packing uh, up to New York in a new uh, lower post where he'd be less likely to, uh, to look into the wrong things. Now, the role for which Lafayette Baker is uh, maybe uh, the most famous came in April 1865, when President Lincoln was assassinated. Baker recalled in his later memoir the, uh, quote, extraordinary indifference in the mind of Mr. Lincoln in regard to threats of assassination, some of which I communicated to him. He almost playfully listened, and apparently was unable to believe depravity would go so far as to destroy a friend of all the people such as he felt himself to be, end quote. As a side note, Lafayette Baker is sometimes uh, blamed for the Lincoln assassination. Not, you know, not like he, he killed Lincoln, but uh, that he should have found out about the plot and uh, prevented it in his counterintelligence role. A, a U.S. government website maintained by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, the site is intelligence.gov, describes the Lincoln assassination as an epic failure 
for Lafayette Baker and concludes, quote, Baker's legacy is forever tarnished by his failure to prevent the president's assassination, end quote. Now, the problem with that conclusion is that in November 1863, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton fired Lafayette Baker from his job as counterintelligence chief in Washington and sent him to work at a lower post in New York. The Lincoln assassination occurred a year and a half later in April 1865. Uh, The confusion on this point may come from the fact that almost immediately after Lincoln's death, Edwin Stanton sent orders for Lafayette Baker to return to Washington from New York uh, to head up the investigation into the assassination. Stanton's cable to Baker read simply, quote, Come here immediately and see if you can find the murderer of the president, end quote. Now, when you think about it, it, it speaks um, pretty highly of Baker's effectiveness, or um, maybe uh, uh, of Edwin Stanton's confidence in Baker, that notwithstanding that uh, Edwin Stanton had fired Baker about a year and a half earlier for spying on Stanton himself, uh, notwithstanding that, when the matter was as urgent and as high priority as they come, Lafayette Baker was the guy who Edwin Stanton wanted on the job. And it didn't take long. Baker was back in Washington on April 16th, and without delay, he dispatched several of his most trusted men into Maryland. They soon had a lead that resulted in several arrests, uh, including Mary Surratt, the uh, boarding house owner who a uh, military tribunal subsequently convicted of participating in the assassination uh, conspiracy, and who then became the first woman executed by the U.S. government. Historians still argue over whether Mary Surratt was actually guilty, uh, as the case against her relied on testimony from um, two pretty questionable witnesses. Regardless, the investigation in Maryland also turned up an important name that warranted further examining, John Wilkes Booth. Baker and his men learned that Booth had returned to Virginia, and he and Stanton sent 25 New York Cavaliers to take part in the manhunt. They tracked Booth to a barn. He refused to surrender, and then the assassin John Wilkes Booth died a few hours later from wounds sustained in the firefight that followed. Lafayette Baker's role in the investigation earned him a healthy monetary reward and a promotion to Brigadier General from President Andrew Johnson. The uh, promotion was not confirmed by the Senate. Lafayette Baker once again lost his job as intelligence coordinator in D.C. early in 1866. The reason he was fired uh, this time was that President Andrew Johnson believed that Baker was using his agents and resources to spy on President Johnson himself. Uh, Baker subsequently acknowledged that, yeah, President Johnson's suspicions were were, uh, well-founded because, you know, Lafayette Baker was spying on President Johnson. Uh, But that was on the orders of Edwin Stanton, according to Baker. Uh, Stanton denied that claim. Now, we need to venture into, for lack of a better term, conspiracy theory territory for one last note about Lafayette Baker. And if you'll indulge me, we're going to recount the alleged conspiracy in, uh, we'll say, its most plausible light, and then go back and hit on some of its weaknesses. Okay. After his firing by President Johnson, Baker wrote a book called History of the Secret Service, which he completed about a year later. 
Among other things, Baker claimed in his book that during the confrontation with John Wilkes Booth, Union soldiers recovered a diary that Booth had kept. Baker asserted that the diary had been turned over to Baker, and then Baker turned it over to Edwin Stanton. Lafayette Baker further alleged that Stanton was preventing the diary from coming to light. It was a cover-up. Now, the implication of this charge was that the diary contained information that painted Edwin Stanton in a bad light. And so Stanton was protecting his own interests by keeping the assassin's diary hidden. Uh, As a footnote for some uh, quick background here, President Andrew Johnson had been a Democrat, a uh, union-loyal Southerner from Tennessee. He was elected as Lincoln's VP in 1864 on what they called the National Union Party ticket. Johnson was largely hamstrung as president by opposition from Republicans, who firmly controlled Washington and and were mostly uh, distrustful of uh, Andrew Johnson. That circumstance made uh, the Republican Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, who carried a lot of weight, you know, in the Republican Party, uh, made him very likely the most politically powerful person in the country. Johnson's impeachment in 1868 arose from his effort to fire Edwin Stanton, since the two men disagreed on important issues, uh, most notably Reconstruction, and they just personally disliked each other. Okay, so after Lafayette Baker published his memoir uh, that claimed that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton uh, possessed an uh, undisclosed journal written by John Wilkes Booth, a congressional committee on Lincoln's assassination summoned Lafayette Baker to testify. The testimony resulted in Edwin Stanton's surprise admission that, yes, the investigators did recover a diary kept by John Wilkes Booth. Stanton reluctantly agreed to deliver the diary to the committee. When asked to examine John Wilkes Booth's diary, uh, the one that was produced by uh, Edwin Stanton, Lafayette Baker confirmed that it was indeed the diary that had been recovered uh, from the deceased assassin. Baker also matter-of-factly noted that about 20 pages had been removed. This destruction of evidence and tampering with a document uh, of obvious historical importance could have occurred, Lafayette Baker maintained, only at Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's direction. I should have noted this uh, earlier, but uh, by all accounts, uh, Lafayette Baker was an exceptionally charismatic, uh, charming guy, so he probably probably made for a compelling, um, persuasive witness uh, when he testified before the committee. Now, the, the implication of Baker's testimony about the missing journal pages was that Booth's entries in those pages would show that Booth was in contact with someone working for Stanton, or possibly even Stanton himself. Baker was suggesting that Stanton was part of a conspiracy to get rid of Lincoln. As president, Lincoln had favored a conciliatory, forgiving reunion with the southern states. Lincoln's approach was, let's let bygones be bygones and we'll be friends again. Stanton and the faction called the Radical Republicans preferred a harsher, more retributive reconstruction. Edwin Stanton's reply to Lafayette Baker's testimony was that, If, in fact, pages were removed from Booth's diary, Stanton didn't know anything about it, and he certainly would not have directed the removal. 
Okay, so the problems with Baker's story. Um, there were several issues in Baker's testimony where he was, uh, after the fact, found to be less than forthcoming, or even caught in what were later confirmed to be lies. Uh, the claim about the removed pages was dubious, because Baker later acknowledged that he, he wasn't certain that pages had been removed, but it seemed likely to him. Baker also claimed that President Andrew Johnson, who had been the military governor of Tennessee, was also a secret Confederate who had been in contact with Jefferson Davis. Baker even claimed to have letters between Johnson and Davis proving this point, but he was not able to produce them. Even radical Republicans who hated Andrew Johnson admitted that these allegations against Johnson were, were absurd. And we'll also point out that if you're Edwin Stanton and you're supposedly in on a conspiracy to take out President Lincoln and then the assassination happens, it seems like your response would probably not be to promptly call for the most effective spy catcher that you know. For all of Lafayette Baker's ethical struggles, he was generally someone who uh, you know, usually got his man. If Stanton was in on a conspiracy, he would have been better served by finding someone who would be likely to bungle the investigation. And Edward Stanton would have been, without a doubt, shrewd enough to recognize that. So it seems the uh, most likely explanation is that after the war, Lafayette Baker was bitter at having been removed from his position, again, and so he tried to exploit an opportunity to defame the two men who had removed him, Secretary of War Stanton and President Johnson. After the controversial testimony about Booth's diary, Lafayette Baker began claiming that there were powerful people, uh, Edwin Stanton being the most obvious, who were set on having him killed. In July 1868, Lafayette Baker died at 42 years old. The reported cause of death was typhoid fever, or possibly meningitis. The theorists have it that Stanton actually had Baker murdered. But by July 1868, uh, Stanton was effectively retired, having already resigned as Secretary of War, and uh, would die himself a year later. Now, we'll just leave it at that except to say that most historians who have looked, uh, looked at the matter have concluded that when Lafayette Baker testified to Congress, uh, he was full of baloney, and that Edwin Stanton was not actually in on the Lincoln assassination. But we can't rule out the possibility that um, those historians uh, uh, may have been in on the plot, too. Before we close out this episode, I want to mention two more interesting Union spies. The first is Harriet Wood, an actress better known by her stage name, Pauline Cushman. Throughout her life, she, like Mary Bowser, went by numerous names, due in part to her multiple marriages. For simplicity's sake, we'll just stick to Pauline Cushman, uh, which is the name used in most historical accounts. Pauline Cushman was born in New Orleans to parents of Spanish and French lineage. She grew up in Michigan, where her parents uh, made their living by trading with the local Indian tribes. As an aspiring actress, she moved first to New York and then back to New Orleans, where she found steady acting work with a playhouse and production company. Uh, American Battlefield Trust reports that during her uh, time as a 20-something actress in New Orleans, Pauline Cushman, quote, became well known for her full figure and seductive charms, end quote. 
Uh, Pauline Cushman was um, not an overweight woman, uh, but she had the benefit of certain uh, endowments that no doubt helped her to uh, draw attention while on stage. Her foray into spying started in 1862, while she had an acting role in Louisville, Kentucky, in a play called The Seven Sisters. A couple of Confederate officers on parole in Louisville reached out to the young Southern-born actress with a proposition. In exchange for a $300 cash payment, Cushman would, at the conclusion of the next play, uh, in which she was appearing, offer a toast to Jefferson Davis. And remember, 300 bucks in 1862 money is probably like 10 grand in today's dollars. So this is no small offer. Now, Louisville was firmly under union control, so toasting Jeff Davis was uh, also sure to come with some downsides. So Pauline Cushman makes a smart move, and she arranges for a meeting with Union Colonel Orlando Moore, uh, who was involved with the military governance of Louisville. And the two of them come up with a plan. Cushman would accept the rebels' money and make the toast as agreed. That would result in her losing her current acting job, but she would then start working as a Union spy, taking advantage of the goodwill and credibility she would earn among Southerners by offering the controversial toast to the rebel president. As a spy, Cushman relied on her acting chops and her New Orleans birth to present herself as a pro-Confederate Southerner allowing access to social functions, military camps, and even smuggling operations. The climax of Pauline Cushman's career as a spy came in Nashville in 1863, when she was tasked by General William Rosecrans's staff with infiltrating the Army of Tennessee's camps to collect any useful military information. Rosecrans was preparing to launch a campaign to take control of central Tennessee. After successfully gaining access to a Confederate camp, the actress was able to secure a written blueprint with plans for Confederate military fortifications. Now, the plans would have been um, an exceptionally valuable asset for Rosecrans. However, Pauline Cushman was captured while trying to escape uh, and in possession of those plans, and needless to say, she was accused of spying. The case was brought before General Braxton Bragg for review. Cushman was found guilty, and the rebel authorities pronounced a sentence of death by hanging. But Cushman was able to uh, ultimately evade the noose by pretending to be gravely ill. Uh, she was probably actually sick also, but she convinced the rebels that she was basically already on her deathbed already, so they delayed the execution until she either died of the illness, at which point hanging is moot, or she recovered enough to be moved to the gallows for a proper hanging. The illness, or uh, more likely the feigned illness, bought enough time that when General Rosecrans invaded Middle Tennessee, Pauline Cushman was not yet dangling from a rope. The Confederates withdrew in response to the invasion, and they didn't bother bringing the actress with them. So when the Union Army took control of Shelbyville, Tennessee, uh, where Pauline Cushman was being held, uh, she was uh, essentially rescued. And then she made a remarkably quick recovery from her illness soon after. In recognition of her service to the Union, Pauline Cushman was awarded an honorary rank of major, which 
interestingly came uh, from two presidents. Uh, first, as a brevet from General and future President James uh, Garfield, and then confirmed by President Lincoln. After the award, Pauline Cushman became a minor celebrity nationally, boosted in part by a sensationalized biography published shortly after the war's end. As an experienced um, professional performer, it was only natural that she would tour the country giving dramatized accounts of her spy career, highlighted by her starring role in a show produced by P.T. Barnum. Pauline Cushman's fame as a Civil War spy carried her career for several years. But unfortunately, illness and arthritis, possibly compounded by lower back issues, prevented her from continuing her performing arts career later in life. Our final Union Civil War spy for this episode is a Canadian, Sarah Emma Edmonds, who was born in New Brunswick and was 20 years old when the U.S. Civil War started. Sarah Edmonds moved to Connecticut while in her late teens because her father had set up a marriage for her uh, that uh, Miss Edmonds wanted to get away from. And things get uh, interesting here because after the move to Connecticut, Sarah Edmonds started to adopt an alternate identity uh, as a dude called Franklin Thompson because, as she recounted later, uh, appearing as a man made it easier to travel freely and to earn a living. In the years just before the war, Sarah Edmonds, as Franklin Thompson, became a moderately successful traveling Bible salesman. And that sales job took her uh, throughout the country, but she adopted Flint, Michigan as her home. And when the war started, Miss Edmonds felt compelled to volunteer, but of course, uh, she could not do so as Sarah Edmonds. So instead, she volunteered under her Bible-selling alter ego, Franklin Thompson. Frank Thompson became a field medic with the 2nd Michigan Volunteer Infantry, which saw rear guard action at 1st Manassas and got in on the fighting during McClellan's Peninsula Campaign. Although normally assigned to medic or courier duty, Sarah Edmonds, as Frank Thompson, participated in exchanges of musket fire uh, with the rebels during the fighting around Williamsburg and likely on other occasions during that campaign also. Now, things get uh, really interesting and uh, more historically controversial starting in April of 1862. Uh, according to the account in Sarah Edmonds's um, best-selling biography, Nurse and Spy in the Union Army, um, that was when Sarah Edmonds learned of the execution by the rebels of the Union undercover spy in Richmond, Timothy Webster, who we discussed earlier. While on courier duty near Union headquarters, Sarah Edmonds learned that due to the loss of Timothy Webster, General McClellan's staff was looking for another undercover spy in Richmond. Edmonds, as Frank Thompson, eagerly volunteered for the position, confident that her experience in disguise as Frank Thompson had prepared her for the spy's role. Sarah Edmonds's memoir reports that Frank Thompson got the job and decided to adopt another identity to allow him to move behind Confederate lines undetected. Edmonds, or Frank Thompson, I guess, became Cuff, a black laborer who would visit a Confederate camp looking for work. So what we have uh, here is a white Canadian woman pretending to be a white man from Michigan 
who is in turn pretending to be a black man from Virginia called Cuff. Okay, so to disguise herself as Cuff, Sarah Edmonds donned uh, blackface using silver nitrate to darken her skin and got a job building field works and helping in the mess hall. When Cuff was sent out to the Confederate picket lines, Sarah Edmonds slipped back to the Union side and reported her findings, including that the rebels were using dummy Quaker guns to give the appearance of having more artillery than they actually had. Sarah Edmonds, uh, again appearing as Frank Thompson, returned to medic duty, but General McClellan's staff had been so impressed by Frank Thompson's performance as Cuff that not long after, Frank Thompson was once again assigned to infiltrate Confederate lines. Now, the Cuff persona was unlikely to work again because Cuff had been sent to the rebel picket line and then disappeared. So another identity was in order. This time, Sarah Edmonds settled on Bridget O'Shea, a rough-around-the-edges Irish woman trying to peddle soap and apples to the rebel soldiers. So now we have a 22-year-old Canadian woman pretending to be a Union soldier who is pretending to be an Irish peddler woman. Bridget O'Shea made her way around the Confederate lines, selling soapy apples and engaging in small talk intended to elicit statements about Confederate strength and positioning. After garnering what information she could, Sarah Edmonds, uh, as Frank Thompson, playing Bridget O'Shea, had to make a daring getaway on a stolen horse, sustaining a wound in the process, but safely returning to Union lines. The third spy mission involved yet another assumed identity, with Sarah Edmonds again choosing blackface. This time, she was an older black woman working in the laundry. As luck would have it, a Confederate officer left important papers in his coat pocket, which Sarah Edmonds pilfered before making a safe return to Union lines to once again share valuable intelligence. The Union Army began pulling out of the peninsula not long after Sarah Edmonds' third spy mission. Edmonds, uh, again, as Frank Thompson, returned to medic and courier duty in the lead-up to 2nd Manassas, and it was during that battle that Sarah Edmonds uh, was injured, probably a broken leg, when thrown from a spooked horse. The 2nd Michigan missed out on Antietam, but Frank Thompson was back in the saddle on courier duty, uh, working for Union Colonel Orlando Poe by December 1862, in time for the Battle of Fredericksburg. But nagging injuries from the horse fall had weakened her constitution, and she came down with a case of malaria the following spring. Uh, malaria is uh, serious business anyway, um, but Sarah Edmonds was in a real bind because if she was admitted to a military hospital for treatment it would almost certainly be discovered that Frank Thompson was not actually a man. So when the 2nd Michigan was reassigned to Kentucky to join the Army of the Cumberland in April 1863, Sarah Edmonds left the Army and instead went to Illinois to recover. After a few months, Sarah Edmonds was again fit for duty and wanted to rejoin the 2nd Michigan. But there was a problem. Franklin Thompson had never arrived for duty with the 2nd Michigan in Kentucky, and was therefore listed as a deserter. To avoid having to explain Frank Thompson's absence and the punishment that might result from uh, being AWOL for several months, 
Uh, Sarah Edmonds instead went east to Washington and began working as a nurse in a D.C. military hospital uh, operated by the U.S. Christian Commission. Significantly, the nurse who worked in the Washington hospital was called Sarah Emma Edmonds, not Franklin Thompson, and she spent the rest of the war working in the hospital under her true identity. Shortly after the war ended, Sarah Edmonds published her memoir, Nurse and Spy in the Union Army, which became highly popular and spread her fame. To her credit, Edmonds donated a lot of the money from uh, book sales to charities that helped injured federal soldiers. By 1867, Edmonds was married to Linus Seal, a fellow Canadian living in the U.S. The couple had three kids, and eventually they settled in Texas, where Sarah Edmonds lived the rest of her life as Sarah Edmonds Seal. Okay, so the controversy is, how much of Sarah Edmonds' story is actually true? The most detailed source is obviously her own memoir, but how reliable is that? Well, in an interview about 15 years after the book's publication, she conceded that it was a dramatized account that should not be read as a strictly accurate history. But uh, she didn't make up the whole thing. Franklin Thompson was definitely a soldier in the Second Michigan, and Franklin Thompson was almost certainly Sarah Edmonds. In 1884, she embarked on a successful campaign to clear the desertion charge from Franklin Thompson's military record. The effort relied on affidavits and testimony of numerous men who had served in the Second Michigan, described in a congressional report as, quote, the testimony of 10 credible witnesses, men of intelligence, holding places of high honor and trust, who positively swear she is the identical Franklin Thompson, end quote. At least one of those witnesses acknowledged that the other soldiers suspected Private Thompson was not actually a man. Congress was sufficiently persuaded to grant Franklin Thompson an honorable discharge and allow a military pension and bonus to Sarah Edmund, entering an official finding, quote, that Franklin Thompson and Mrs. Sarah E.E. E. Seal are one and the same person, is established by abundance of proof and beyond a doubt, end quote. The veterans group called the Grand Army of the Republic also admitted Sarah Edmonds as its only female member. So we can be pretty confident in the part about Sarah Edmonds uh, living almost two years as Private Franklin Thompson, medic, courier, and infantryman in the 2nd Michigan Volunteers. But what about the spy stuff? To be frank, uh, which of course is what um, Sarah Edmonds uh, did for two years, uh, the spying stuff was almost certainly made up to make the memoir more entertaining. Exhibit A. The memoir includes a fourth spy mission in which Edmonds disguised herself as Charles Mayberry, a detective who identified Confederate agents in Kentucky. Uh, but there is no record that Franklin Thompson was ever in Kentucky. Remember, the name Frank Thompson is no longer on the rolls once the second Michigan arrives in Kentucky, and that's when Franklin Thompson is charged with desertion. Okay, Exhibit B. Two of the men uh, Sarah Thompson uh, would have been working for as a spy during the Peninsula Campaign, um, General George McClellan and Detective Alan Pinkerton, both kept meticulous records. Neither of their personal papers includes a reference to Franklin Thompson. 
Uh, Edmonds claimed to have delivered some of the intelligence to uh, General McClellan personally. If that meeting had actually occurred, there almost certainly would have been a record of it. And Exhibit C. Sarah Edmonds's memoir tells stories from both Antietam and from Vicksburg. But the 2nd Michigan was not at Antietam, and she was already working under her own name at the hospital in Washington uh, by the time the Vicksburg story could have occurred. And finally, in her affidavit to Congress, Edmonds did not claim to have been a spy, and uh, nearly disclaims the story, testifying in part, quote, I make no statement of any secret services. There is so much mean deception necessarily practiced by a spy that I much prefer everyone should believe that I never was beyond the enemy's lines, rather than to fasten upon me by oath of a thing I despise so much. It may do in wartime, but it is not pleasant to think upon in time of peace. End quote. So there you have it. Canadian-born Sarah Emma Edmonds definitely deserves the credit for having successfully disguised herself as Frank Thompson to serve in the Union Army. The spy stories, though, are just entertaining fiction. Uh, in retrospect, it was, uh, in my opinion, a bad decision to mix the two into a single account. The fabrication of the uh, latter tends to detract from the significance of the former. And that will bring a close to part one of our look into Civil War espionage. In part two, we'll venture into the world of Confederate spies. As with the Union side, the ladies will again play a feature part in that episode. I anticipate spending a, a good amount of time on uh, one figure in particular, Bill Boyd, uh, who you're going to love. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email to blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, spelling gray with an E. Till next time, thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.